Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. What's the biggest living thing? The biggest living thing? A blue whale? Elephant? What's the biggest living thing? The biggest living thing is actually in Utah. On the Colorado Plateau, it's 5.8 tons, and it lives at 9,000 feet. The biggest living thing is actually an aspen grove named Pando. It's bigger than 35 blue wells. It's bigger than 1,000 elephants. It stretches eight football fields in length. The biggest living thing is actually a collection of things that look separate but are actually one because beneath Pando, beneath all of these amazing trees, gold and glistening in the fall, is an intricate root system that unites every single one of them as though they are indeed one because they are. This is an amazing chapter because um, I don't know if you've ever read Nehemiah chapter 3 or certainly have you ever had it read publicly. And now you know why. (laughs) The most popular well-known book, most well-known commentary on Nehemiah is a book by Chuck Swindoll called Hand Me Another Brick. It doesn't even mention Nehemiah chapter 3. But this chapter is amazing. The popular way that most of us have grown up, and if you're new to Christianity, most people read Nehemiah, and when they read the story of Nehemiah, they read it as an isolated case, and they say, Nehemiah, oh, what a great leader, and they pull out a Nehemiah leadership principles, and they read passages like Nehemiah 3, and they say, okay, this must mean that I must delegate hard work. And the temptation is when you read books like Nehemiah and even books like Ezra, as we're studying, is that you take them and you read the Bible as though the Bible were one book comprised of many, many, many stories. And so you tend to come to the book and you pull out leadership principles when you read stories like Nehemiah or when you read stories like David and Goliath. You know, you say, okay, well, I guess the the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And you pull out these principles and you use the Bible like an Aesop's fable or a manual for a way to kind of modify your behavior. But I think what is so important for us in this church and as Christians is to always read the Bible in the context of all of redemptive history because that's what makes this passage so amazing. When you read Nehemiah chapter 3, what you see is you see a progression. You see a biblical theology begin to develop because notice, notice what it says in this passage. You have men and women. You have Levites and you have laity. You have priests and you have laity. You have young and old. You have goldsmiths and merchants and priests and noblemen all doing one thing together, rebuilding the wall. In the Old Testament before this, oftentimes when there needed to be a job done, what would you do? Well, you would lean on somebody like Moses or David, and they they would be the ones that did all the work. They would be the priests, or they would be the king, or they would be the prophet before God. But by the time that you get to this point in redemptive history in the Bible, 
after the 70 years of captivity, when they return to the land, you begin to see the Bible open up in amazing ways. And that's what I want to draw your attention to here. Because the point of this passage is that everybody gets to be involved in building up the body of Christ. Everybody gets to be involved in building up the body of Christ. It's not just Moses. Do you remember when Moses came down from the mountain and he found Israel worshiping the golden calf? And the Lord had said, I'm going to wipe them out in his anger. And what did Moses do? Moses said, don't do that. Don't do that. You promised according to your word. Don't do that. And Moses interceded for the people. Moses stood before the people to represent them before God. But by the time you get to Nehemiah, you see the relationship between the priests and the laity, between the ministers and the people in the congregation begin to break down. And there's something remarkable about this. The teaching here is that every Christian... Not just the pastors, not just the priests, not just those in the Old Testament, but every Christian is set apart to build up Christ's kingdom. Every Christian is set apart to build up Christ's kingdom. You see a progression in the way that God demonstrates who is called holy. You see it in the words Kadesh in Hebrew. When you begin to read, it says they consecrated it and set its doors. This is the gate, the gates around the city. They, they move counterclockwise around the city. And as they're moving counterclockwise to repair these gates, they consecrate these doors. They Kadesh, which means they make it holy. They set it apart. In um, the story of Jacob, for example, when he's at, uh, at Bethel, you remember he, Jacob in, um, sees the stairway to heaven. And if you don't know the story, Jacob sees the stairway to heaven and he sees angels ascending and descending on it. And God's presence is there. And God is there. And is God present? Is he holy? Is he there? Well, yes, he is and no. Because he's there and then he's gone. He's there, but then he leaves. And Jacob experiences the presence of God in a temporary way. Or like we, conf we confessed earlier, David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? No, of course not. Because it's about what he has done and he clings to you. However little you feel like you cling to him, he's got you. But David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me because in the Old Testament, God's presence would dwell and then it would leave. And all the way from Genesis on, you begin to see God's holiness, his presence, the presence of his kingdom come in powerful ways, in a temporary way. And so he's there with Jacob at Bethel, and then later he's there by a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. His presence rests on the tabernacle. And then by the time that you get here to Nehemiah, you find that God has gone from the altar, I mean, from the garden to the altar in the priests, in the tabernacle, in the temple. And he goes from the temple and he shows his Shekinah glory in a powerful way by consecrating these doors. And it's as though the doorways are literally opening up where God is calling holy, not just those items that are used in worship, but now the entire city of Jerusalem is being consecrated for the Lord. In Isaiah um, chapter 4, 
it says, this remarkable passage in, in chapter 4, it says, And in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Zion will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over the glory there will be a can- for all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. If you're an Old Testament Jew and you're reading that, that is shocking. Because it used to just be the temple and in the Holy of Holies that was holy. And here through Isaiah, the Lord is saying that it won't just be the Holy of Holies, it won't just be the vessels in the temple, it won't just be the lampstands, it won't just be the priests. One day my glory is going to break out and my glory is going to cover the entire city. And it's interesting in biblical theology of holiness that God sets apart things to be holy and he dedicates them to God. First it was a garden. Then in his promises it became a tabernacle. Then the temple in the city. And now what he is saying in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 3, what has become holy has become a people. That all these people are like priests. They are doing the work of ministry. That they have become not just a people who are living near the temple, but they have become, in effect, a living temple themselves as they do the work through their gifts of rebuilding the wall. Unless you think that this only applies to uh, the physical city of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah chapter 25, it says that Jerusalem, its walls represent salvation. And that God is calling his people to be inside the walls of his salvation. And so this is not just a physical place. It's a spiritual reality that God is rebuilding his church. He is establishing it and he is protecting it. And for Nehemiah, back in the day, the, real build, the rebuilding of the physical walls was incredibly important because you couldn't have a city without walls because the walls literally protected you and those who lived inside from, from vigilantes and from uh, the avenger of blood and from, from people who were coming to, to, to commit crime. They would set the wall and inside that wall would produce commerce and inside that wall would produce a culture and a city that would be established in order for people to live. And so when Nehemiah is building a wall, he is not building a wall because, well, the city just needs a facelift. He's building a wall because he's saying, we have to reconstruct for us a culture that allows us to flourish in God's truth. And the point Nehemiah is making in this chapter is that everybody did that work. And so what does that mean for those of us who are in Christ today? Well, it means that when we read Nehemiah, we don't just pull out out of it leadership principles, but we see in the course of 
all of redemptive history in that there is a, a greater Nehemiah, isn't there, that Nehemiah points to, the Lord Jesus Christ, who also, like Nehemiah of old, lived in the comfort in the palace at the right hand of his father. But like Nehemiah, Jesus left the palace and he came into us, the city as it were, not at the risk of his life like Nehemiah, but at the cost of his life. And so those of us who believe in the greater Nehemiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to repair the walls to protect us from sin and death and gave his life for us, invites us, please hear me, invites us to be set apart and to be holy for him and to use the gifts he's given us to create something far more beautiful than an aspen grove in Utah, but to be intricately connected beneath the surface so that we don't just become friends, we become family. And the blood of baptism is thicker than the blood of water, as the early church would often say. What does this show us? It shows us, number one, that you have a ministry to enjoy. You have a ministry. Kiddos, if you're in elementary school, please hear me. Even you, even you have a ministry. Those of you who believe in Jesus, you have a ministry to enjoy that builds up the body of Christ. And that while I know on Sundays I lead us in worship and I teach, but Nehemiah chapter 3 shows us that you are just as important as I am to this church, even the smallest among us. Second, that you are one with Christ, in Christ, with fellow brothers and sisters at Trinity. You have a ministry to enjoy that builds up the body, and that you are one in Christ, with fellow brothers and sisters at Trinity. God is making us one with all of our diversity, with all of our nationalities, he's making us one. In, in Isaiah um, chapter 19, it's around verse 25 or so, what does he say of the nations? He says, Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. What's he doing? Isaiah is saying that it's not just Israel. But the gospel is going to the world and that even the people of Egypt and Assyria who were once enemies of God now are precious in my sight and I am making them one. The Lord's church, spiritual Israel today, those who place their faith in Jesus is one. And we look at the nations of the world and we say all of those who profess their faith in Christ, whether they live in the geographical land of Israel or they live in Gaza or the West Bank or they live in Egypt or they live in Canada, we are all one in Christ. And isn't that amazing? We were talking in, in um, AM Discipleship this morning that did you know that by 2030, there will be more Christians in communist China than there are in the United States of America by 2030. And Christianity is the only world religion that has had its center on every continent in the world. And now that center is not the US or Europe, it is in Africa. And if you were to say, if you were to say to Siri, Siri, show me the typical Christian in the world today. Or to say to AI, show me the typical Christian. What would they say? They would show you a dark-skinned woman, probably living in Africa. And we are one. You know what else that means? It means that you, friends, are not here by accident. In God's providence, 
He's brought you to this place. And you know what he wants you to do? He wants you to look around at, this, at the church and go, okay, great. Coffee's pretty good. Teaching, oh, we're trying to decide about that. Relationships are okay. But he wants you to make this place beautiful because he is giving you gifts that I don't have. He's giving you gifts that the elders don't have. He is giving you gifts, so college students, that we need. And so the church becomes the place where we rebuild the wall, in a sense. But we are the ones who get to work, every single one of us. Men, women, boys, girls, goldsmiths, merchants, priests, noblemen. We do the work together. Because you are, number four in your notes, you are unique in your spiritual gift mix. Notice the diversity of people in Nehemiah chapter 3, which is what makes this so remarkable. There are sons, there are governors, there are goldsmiths, there are perfumers, there are men, there are women, there are young, there are old. Even Shalom, who probably had no sons, had his daughters help him. There are rulers, there are Levites, there are Tekoites, there are priests, there are keepers of the gates. There are, listen, like, in other words, everybody did the work. There's a, there's a place in, in Mark 11, you know the place where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist? And if you're new to Christianity, there's a place in Mark 11 where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, his cousin. And he says that uh, no one is greater than, uh, no one greater born of woman uh, is there than John the Baptist. And then he says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven are greater even than he. What does he mean? He means that you, on this side of redemptive history, seeing the finished work of Jesus, the Messiah, you have a greater ministry even than the locust-eating, camel-hair-wearing John the Baptizer. And so when you think to yourself, uh, I'm not much, I want you to look yourself in the mirror and I want you to hear Jesus saying to you that you're even greater than John the Baptist. You have more, you have a greater privilege than John the Baptist because you see the promises fulfilled in Christ. There's a place in 1 Peter chapter 1 where uh, Peter says that the gospel is beautiful and powerful and even, it says, the angels long to see what you see. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Angels crane their necks to see the gospel at work in your life. You get to experience conversion, redemption, growth, and holiness in a way the angels do not. And they crane their necks to look at you. Isn't that amazing? In worship, we worship amidst the spiritual realm. And so they're present here right now. You can't see them, but they're looking. Oh, what's he doing in Susie? In John. Look at that in Mike's life. Man, look at how he's working in Josh. They're craning their necks to look at you. So you have a greater perspective even than the angels, 1 Peter chapter 1. And in Ephesians chapter 2, God 
reminds us through the Apostle Paul that you're saved by grace, not by works, lest any of us should boast. And then he says what? That you are prepared for good works that Christ has in advance prepared for you. You are set apart for good works. So in this church, I know we, we emphasize a lot God's initiative and his work in our hearts and his life, which is, of course, the basis of the gospel. He works in us long before we ever make a decision for him. Amen? But he prepares us to do good works. And we are holy and set apart for him. For if we have the perspective greater than the angels, or if we have a privilege greater than John the Baptist, why would you not want to use your spiritual gift with a sense of joy and care? Because that's what he has called us to do, and he's called us to be. In the early church, when you read the patristics, and and scholars like Michael Green and others who have written books on evangelism in the early church, they will say that in the early church, why did the gospel spread like wildfire in the first several hundred years? This backwoods religion from a Jewish carpenter all of a sudden explodes, and then by the year uh, Theodotus comes to power after um, uh, 325, Constantine's successor, and he makes it the official religion. Constantine didn't make it the official religion. Theodotus did. And when he makes it the official religion, in 400 years, Christianity has swept the known world. Why? Because brothers and sisters, Christians, evangelized on secular grounds. They didn't just bring people to the preacher. He says, Michael Green and other scholars will save the early church. They evangelized on secular grounds. Secondly, conversions happened in homes. They talked about the gospel amongst families, amongst generations, and conversions happened, not in the church. They happened in homes and on the street corners. And thirdly, he says that Christians invited people over. They demonstrated a kind of love and hospitality that was radical in those days. And so, oh, Trinity, would you be the kind of people that invite people into your homes, that open up your house, that don't just bring people to hear the preacher, but actually share the reason for the hope that you have in your sphere of influence and where you are. And the early church depended upon the work of the Holy Spirit, not technique, but they always had an ear to listen to how is the Lord working in the person to whom I'm speaking? And how can I redirect them toward a larger story about how the Lord is making all things new in him? And what this shows us is that the early church didn't just rely on people like Nehemiah or Moses or David or the priests. Everybody did the work in the early church. And beginning in Nehemiah, you begin to see it open up. Or was it just Levites? It was laity. You get that point. I want to drive it home so that you understand it. Everybody gets to do the work of building up the body of Christ. It also shows us an incredible sense of unity. Now, commentators of Nehemiah chapter 3 will go into the Hebrew names, each of these names, and what they mean and who they are. And the point is that this is a foretaste of the church in glory. Everybody, all of its diversity, and there's some radical diversity here, different nations even coming to rebuild that wall. It's a foretaste of what it's going to be like in the New Jerusalem. When, when Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preaches a sermon on Ephesians 1.15, and, and in his sermon on Ephesians 1, he says, uh, how do you know that somebody is a true believer? 
And Martin Lloyd-Jones, this old brilliant British physician in the Royal Academy who later became a pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones says there's two ways. The first is that they have a changed heart by faith. They have a renewed love for the gospel, for Jesus. And that renewed love for the gospel and for Jesus spills over so that they love the saints around them. And they don't just love the brothers and sisters in Jesus around them, but they love them at a cost. So Trinity, please hear me. I know that many of you love each other, but you love each other until it costs you something, and then all of a sudden you're busy. But what would it be like to be able to enter into the greater joy that the Lord is inviting you into and that you see shadows of in Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 3, to love each other even when it costs you something your time and your treasure and your talent and dwelling together. And through our community groups and our relationships, becoming something beautiful, something precious, so that in 50 years, people see this church, long after many of us in this room are, are, are in glory with the Lord, people will see this church and say, there's something unique about that church. Different races, different economic standards, different political positions, different in so many different ways. Any of you Minecraft fans in here? Yeah, I see those hands. Thank you. There it is. Yes, thank you. You know, in Minecraft, what is it that you can't mine at the very, very bottom of Minecraft? What is it? Bedrock. There it is. And when you play Minecraft, you can mine all these amazing things. And on the surface, you see all this great diversity, but you can't get through the bedrock. Question, what is your bedrock? Because I know that you are a, you know, a, some of you are Chinese Christians. Some of you are American Christians. Some of you are Palestinian Christians in this room. Some of you are European Christians. Some of you grew up in Britain and you're English Christians. But beneath your Englishness, beneath your Chineseness, what is it? You are a Christian. Your bedrock identity is not that you're a doctor, not that you're a lawyer, not that you're on the school board, not that you're this, not that you're that, not that you're a, Your bedrock identity is that you are a believer. You're a Christian, and you're his. And the reason why so many of you feel at a loss is because you're placing your identity in stuff that's not the bedrock. And so whenever trouble comes, it gets mined out from under you. And then you're, but it's only in Christ that's the bedrock for you. Why? Because only in Christ did he fulfill for you what you were unable to do for yourself. He paid the price on the cross for you. He is the greater Jeremiah who left the palace an order at the cost of his life to protect us from sin and death by himself becoming the wall around which we are safe. There's a, there's a, um, there's a place in Mark chapter 10 that says that he who gives up uh, fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers and everything in this life You know what it says? He says, will now in this life have even more fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers. And why this passage is so amazing to me is because when I was in high school, I went through an incredibly hard time. And I remember one night at 2 a.m., I called the intern of my youth group. His name was Roger. And Roger came over and he picked me up. And at 2 a.m. in the morning, yes, my parents know. I know it sounds shady today, but back then it was... He he picked me up, and we went and worked out and lifted weights at 3 a.m. in the morning because I was really struggling with my faith, with my family, with a lot. And Roger just came, and it was the presence of Jesus. And we went and worked out together. He came and 
help me at a cost to him. There's a lady who, um, um, she lived in Florida many years ago, went to a PCA church, a sister church in our denomination. She, was a, she had been divorced, her husband had left her, and she had a young son. And um, to her horror, she was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. And in the days before her death, she met with a session of that church. And she said, the doctors have told me that I don't have long to live. And I am putting together my will. And I would like the session of this church to take responsibility of my son. And do you know what one of the elders said? That sounds like a job for the deacons. <laughs> now the elders said, we will honor your wishes and we will care for your child. And that church, that PCA church, found a family in that church to adopt that son and raise him up. And he was raised in that church. And he is living now in a flourishing career in life because the church literally became his father and mother. Friends, what you're a part of is something far more beautiful than the biggest thing on earth. You are an aspen grove of diff a different sort. And whether you like it or not, by virtue of your baptism, you are interconnected. And we affect one another. Your sin is never private. It affects the whole organism called the church. And we have inherited the promises by faith that the Lord has given from the very beginning in the covenant of works with Adam all the way through the covenant of grace. We as his church begin to do the work together. Because everybody doesn't have to do the work. We get to do the work of building up the body of Christ. Hallelujah. May we be that kind of people together. Father, help us. Would you help us to be the kind of church that does the work together, that doesn't rely on the professionals, that recognizes the power of your Holy Spirit in our life, and that we recognize what our gifts are and we begin to put them to use. Father, help us to realize what we will see in a billion years, the beauty and the remarkable phenomenon of your church on earth. And help us to make her beautiful in this place in Northeast Oklahoma, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.